Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting next to Mr. Jeff Gann. Jeff, how's it going today? It is going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. This is the first time we're recording since Thanksgiving. It's been a while. Yes. It's been a while. We recorded a bunch uh, before Thanksgiving, so we're happy to be back. We hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I'm going to go on the record and say I don't know if anybody actually likes turkey. Um, I think it's a kind of a thing people eat just to be polite. Do you okay. like turkey? I, I do like turkey. You do like turkey. Yeah. Okay. Well, I put it on my plate because I wanted to be polite, but I was all over that that glazed ham. But we hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We're happy to be back, happy to be recording. Hey, if you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. And then, of course, if you are watching on the podcast side of things or listening on the podcast side of things, um, leave us a rating or review. That goes a long way for us. If you like the work that we are doing, you also want to support us and get access to uh, investment write-ups from Mr. Jeff and other people on our website, go to focuscompounding.com and be sure to sign up. Um, we're actually going to be referencing five stocks. I think there's five stocks we're going to be going over that you have written up for the website in the past couple of weeks. And we're going to chat about it and we'll see where it goes. So the first stock we're going to be talking about is a stock that for whatever reason, it, it kind of drew up a lot of attention because okay. it, we call it an overlooked stock. Right. And that's Sydney Airport. And your title is a safe, growing, and inflation-protected asset that's leveraged to the hilt. Yes. And a lot of individuals, when we tweeted about this, that it was on our watch list, reached out via DM, via email, saying, why is that on your watch list? That mm -hmm. is not an overlooked stock. So maybe we should just quickly define what an overlooked stock is to us, and then we could talk about the actual company itself. Right, so technically an overlooked stock, I mean, we, we apply subjective rules to what an overlooked stock is too, but objectively what we do for screening purposes, just to have a list of stocks, is um, how high is the beta? Is it uh, significantly less than one? And uh, also how high is the share turnover, meaning how many shares trade in a year relative to the amount of the total shares outstanding. Got it. So how do you do that calculation really quick? Uh, so you probably daily volume is the easiest. So you take daily volume and then you multiply it by... And we do the average three-month yeah. volume. And you multiply it by the, um, uh, what are there, 252 trading days in a year? Roughly. In the, in the U.S. Yeah, and this yeah. is just an approximation, of course. I mean, come on, let's not get too precise, but yes. So yeah, multiply by 250... Uh, and then uh, divide by the number of shares outstanding. That will give you an estimate of it. Obviously, if the volume is weird now versus the past, uh, then it'll give you a misleading number or something. But it's just most websites don't actually have the actual number of shares traded last year. Yeah. They would have a, a daily volume number. Uh, and then beta we use, we actually care more about correlation, but that's just a harder number to get. So every website has beta. So if your beta is uh, less than one. So if your beta is less than one and your share turnover is less than 100%, then we might consider you overlooked. If your beta is like 0 0.5 or less and your share turnover is 50% or less, we would definitely consider you overlooked. Sydney Airport barely makes it on both of those, but it definitely does make it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, other airport stocks I've seen seem to similarly have unusually low share turnover. I don't know why. I was definitely interested to read up about this because I've never actually read like 
I guess, about the business model of an airport. Everybody's obviously, most people I assume have been to an airport, understand what an airport is, has walked through an airport, has probably shopped at shops in an airport or convenience stores or whatever. So I thought it was, um, you know, quite interesting because of obviously the foot traffic that goes through airports. So tell me a little bit about Sydney Airport um, and what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, so Sydney Airport, um, pretty typical i'd say in terms of the economics of airport stocks and i'm probably going to look at some other airport stocks now after looking at this one um it has basically gets about half of its uh revenue half which in its case revenue is probably pretty close to what it it makes it has some fixed expenses but otherwise it's pretty close to what it actually will make in the operate in operating income and things like that so it probably gets about half of its profits as well from uh what they call the aeronautical segment which is basically from stuff they do for airlines and collecting payments from airlines so basically fees and stuff that airlines pay usually based on a per passenger the contracts usually per number of passengers that they're passing through the airport uh in some cases it's the maximum takeoff weight of the plane um and so that they're just like fees for using the airport and for other infrastructure there uh, for using the terminal and other infrastructure and then the other half is all the other things you'd expect that an airport would make money on which is leasing space out to tenants for shopping mm-hmm. um, which are restaurants and uh, duty-free and like convenience type things like you said and uh, advertising so you know the boards and things up there uh, they use them the I think their most recent contract they have uses the biggest um, advertiser in airports that I know of uh, and then um, a company that handles the actual ad stuff and then uh, so it's basically the same thing it's kind of like they're leasing them ad space and then they also have um, uh, things like parking, which they make some money off of. Sure. And, and including that would be like shuttles and stuff like that. Now, this company actually has very, very few uh, employees versus the number of employees you see at the airport. Usually they're either uh, their customers, so the airlines and the uh, retail tenants and stuff are the actual people employing all these people. Or um, the other thing that they would have is uh, they contract out services and things. So my estimate was that 1% to 2% of the total people you see at Sydney Airport actually work for this company. Wow. Why do you think uh, airports are so heavily leveraged? Uh, why do you think this is? I mean, I guess if you think about it, the best companies to probably own are companies that can take on a ton of debt, yes. but don't. I mean, or maybe, right. potentially. But like in this situation, I thought it was interesting. I think you had uh, written about its uh, current debt to EBITDA was at six times. Yes. It's pretty and significant. historically, it was at, I think it peaked at 10 to 11 times EBITDA. Yeah. At uh, one time, it was closer to 11 times. Yeah. Uh, this one, I think, has a little to do with the history of the company, which I did not get into at all here. Basically, it's a it's a um, sort of infrastructure investment thing. It's a financial engineering thing, why they have that high. Uh, I know some other airports that have lower. Um, but you're right that they could stand to have that high. I, I don't think that they're, I, they're... I mean, you can look at their bond ratings. Their bond ratings are okay. Their bond ratings are very good for a company that has six, six times that diva. Sure. Um, and you can see why the ratings agencies uh, do that. They also are very good about how they handle their debt. Um, they space it out basically by like laddering it over like uh, about... Their average maturity, I think, is in like six years, seven years, something like that. And um, so about half of it comes due longer than six years from now and about half shorter than six years um they mostly they, they've done bond issues in the u.s and in europe and stuff but they do a good job of matching it off with the currency so they actually do it in australian dollars they manage to get people to buy it, uh bonds that pay in australian dollars even though they're being sold to investors in other uh, countries sure so your last paragraph in um in the post was it's probably a mistake to pass on sydney airport stock if i was managing a billion billions of dollars maybe i wouldn't but i just rather find things that offer similar 
similar returns without using so much leverage to do it. Um, and then you left your uh, initial interest at a score of 70%, which is a, that means that's probably something you are going to revisit in yeah. the future. And you left a possible revisit price of 4.50 AUD, 50% lower. 50% lower stock price. To yeah. explain that to people, that's yeah. shockingly low. Yeah. Um, that the stock price would have to drop by 50% before I would revisit it. But there's a reason for that. If it has a lot of debt, then a significant amount of the enterprise value is actually the debt, which won't change in value meaningfully, uh, even if the stock price falls a lot. So what's happening there is that actually I'm saying if the enterprise value was maybe like 25% lower than it is now, but the value of the debt is probably the same as the value of the the market uh, cap, like at, at uh, the market, the, yeah, the market cap, the actual uh, stock at uh, market values. So the reason for that is like, basically I'm saying at three quarters the price it is now, it would be interesting. But to get that, you have to, of course, have it all happen in a stock price decline. It's not going to happen in the bonds declining. So that's why you have such a big uh, stock price decline. That sure. Need. The reason why it's attractive, just so you understand, is that they have a 20-year plan. And so when I valued it, I based it on the idea of what if they achieve their 20-year plan. And their 20-year plans for like around 2% annual passenger growth. If you look at that plus the escalations that are built into airline stuff, I think that that could give you, you know, you could have revenue growth of like 5% or something um, without doing much of anything else except just having that 2% growth in, pas in passenger traffic and then um, uh, basically like 2 or 3% inflation. You, you're raising higher than inflation. And then because of operating leverage, your uh, results would be even better than that. The big problems with them are uh, the leverage and also they haven't paid taxes in the past and they will in the future and they pay everything out in dividends so uh the combination of all those things worries me about whether they can keep doing that forever uh so i would say this price would have to be a lot lower before i'd be interested yeah got it all right next stock fw thorpe a good business making durable products that may have already peaked tell me about fw thorpe so fw thorpe was interesting this is a uk company it makes commercial lighting it makes lighting for all sorts of different things used in everything from clean rooms hospitals um, lighting for store signs and, and ad stuff, um, exit signs, uh, all sorts of things. Um, I like the organization a lot. Uh, I think that they had a huge boom in the past of people switching to using, a company switching to using LED. And I think in large part it was for the benefit of going green. You know, some of it was that this company focuses on what they call lowest cost, uh, total cost of ownership, which is common for quality companies to do companies that are big on, on products that are high quality and have a high initial price. So they try to sell you something that costs a lot at first, but will last longer, have less maintenance, things like that. Like they, they have, they do like, um, for their road stuff, like on actual roads and things, um, tunnels, roads, stuff like that, which towns would be using and, and, and provinces and stuff. Um, they have like they put kits on it and stuff so that your road workers who are there can just uh, put it on any sort of sign or something whereas their competitors might do something that's by not doing that by making it uh, they can make it a lot cheaper if they uh, if your own workers would have to make adjustments to it and stuff like that and so this is a company that focuses on all the things of making it easy to maintain making it uh, cheaper over the long term making it simpler and and some other things that they do too uh 
so high-end stuff. Uh, I think that the LED thing is the problem. So the company's grown a lot in the past and it's valued kind of like a growth stock now. And they went from being almost no LED a couple, you know, a decade or so ago to being like all LED now. And I think that the market that they're in just won't grow at all. So they still have targets to grow, but that means they have to take significant amounts of market share. And so if you look at the stock price, I think at the end I talk about it. If you look at the stock price, I kind of tell you how much it would have to grow to achieve that, I think. And, so you um, did like a reverse DCF kind of type right, of thing? Yeah. And so I talk about, I, I thought I did, but maybe I don't. Um, and so I just that the ability to grow that fast uh, is just something that I can't predict here. Yeah. Yeah. You left uh, Jeff's initial interest at 30%. So yeah. that's something that you probably won't revisit. Right. But I actually, uh, I, the industry's okay. And I actually like the organization a ton. Everything I read about the organization I liked um, from everything that's former family founders and things yeah. uh, that have now passed on to more like professional management and stuff. But uh, just a great organization. I like the way they break it down to five, I don't know, something like five different groups and that um, everything about the way the business is run, I like. The industry, I just don't think is going to grow that fast. So the stock price is too high. Got it. And again, if you want to get access to all of these write-ups, go to focuscompound.com and sign up as a premium member, uh, which is $60 a month. Um, and then you will get access to uh, all these write-ups. You can cancel whenever you want. Okay, next uh, post, game host, operator of three local monopoly type casinos in Alberta, Canada, spending the minimum on CapEx and paying the maximum in dividends. Wow, such a catchy <laughs> title. This is a company that I brought to you. Well, I, br yeah, I, brought, I bring all these companies all to Jeff. These, yeah. Maybe we should talk about the process okay. of how that usually goes. All right. So I, I, uh, I spent some time looking for ideas for Jeff okay. to do a little bit more of a further research in. I kind of look from the bird's eye view, see if it's something that we'd be potentially interested in. And um, then what I do is I send Jeff an email. Mm -hmm. That usually is in his inbox by 6 o'clock p.m. Mm -hmm. That has a snapshot of a few different things. Um, and then um, I guess I kind of line item, like, for example, like the beta, the share turnover, a few different sources. And then he goes and he researches the stock himself. And then he writes it up for the, pot, or for the website. Yeah, you that's the research process. Research the stock one day and then do the write up the next day. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I came up with this company. I think I found this on a screen and I thought it was um, interesting. We've looked at casino operators in the past mm -hmm. and a few other things in the um, Butler National gaming industry, I guess you could website. call it. Yeah. So, it's something that we've been uh, familiar with. So, I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting. And I think I read the investor presentation in the 10K. Their investor presentation was kind of odd, I will say. If you want to read a very pitchy investor presentation, go read theirs. Um, Not to get us in trouble with Canadians again, but uh, yes. you haven't read a lot of presentations by companies in other countries. Uh, it, it was very pitchy. Companies in the U.S. are sometimes more careful. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very stuff. pitchy. Very much why I think they literally have a slide that said why game host should be in your portfolio. So yeah, I thought that was, that was it. That do that same thing, but yeah. yeah, interesting. Anyways, tell me about the company. What'd you figure out? Uh, so interesting company. Uh, so Alberta. So the problem that I'm going to run into here is that I have never been to Alberta. I don't know anything about it yeah. and uh, can't really comment on the places that they're in. They're in, um, I don't remember all the names of the casinos with the specific cities that they're in, but uh, for example, two of the cities that they're in, and these are, um, when I say cities here, it's important to understand that these are, um, these are like micropolitan 
So they're the opposite of metropolitan areas. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like yeah. We spent some time in the New Jersey, in New York, New Jersey area and stuff. And when you're in New Jersey and stuff, you're not in a city, but you're around Philadelphia and New York and stuff. And there's just sprawl all around there. And you, there's competition in all ways. Here, I'm going to talk about cities, but with the exception of Calgary, uh, the other cities that they're in, while major population centers, don't have much of anything around them. Yeah. So that's why I'm talking about the fact that they're sort of local monopolies. So two of the three casinos, I'd say, are pretty much local monopolies in that they are in a city where they are providing ample uh, capacity for gambling relative to the amount of gambling that probably the people want to do in, in that place. I, I would say that these casinos aren't even operating at capacity, and yet they're 100% type market share, basically, in two. Uh, the one in Calgary, I think, is totally different, but the company doesn't go into a lot of detail about that. They still say, well, the, the other casinos in Calgary aren't that close to our casino. I don't know about that. There's several casinos in Calgary, so I'm doubtful. Um, but I looked up reviews and stuff of it. They uh, This is something that, based on regulation and stuff, could be attractive. Yeah. So I don't believe their regulator has issued a new casino license in over 10 years. Um, the economy in the area has declined quite a bit with with two of their casinos being in places that had a significant influx of people probably for working on like um, oil sands. Yeah, oil like sands. Yeah. yeah, definitely working on petroleum related stuff. And um, uh, a lot, and that probably brought in a large influx of uh, people to hotels and to gaming. And uh, they own hotels, but I don't think they make any money on the hotels, to be honest. I think the sole purpose of owning the hotels is to have them directly across from the casinos and to have sort of a captive audience. There. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so while it, it goes in, same thing with food and beverage. Yeah. Uh, they do have a food and beverage business. I think they might make some money on the beverage part of it, but I think the beverage is mostly to uh, facilitate the gaming and the food they outsource to someone else. And from all reviews I saw is that people they outsource them to don't do a good job. Yeah, on it. and why and, and why this did catch my eye? Mm -hmm. It was a because obviously I'm familiar with I guess the casino. We've looked at a few different stocks, um, and then I believe it's trading at like what a, a eight or twelve percent free cash flow yield. It has a massive dividend. I they think pay it's trading. Like, on yeah, and it's paying like mm -hmm. what ten percent or currently trading ten to twelve times earnings or something in that ballpark. I mean, yeah. it screams cheap when you're looking at it from the outside looking in. Yeah, and management incentives. Uh, management takes gets paid a couple different ways, including sort of extra fees and things on stuff. But basically all their incentives are perfectly aligned with shareholders in the sense that just getting more revenue from the existing casinos and stuff is their, uh, is what they're incentivized to do. And that's how they make basically all their money. Um, the, so I think these are, I don't think these are great casinos and I think they're probably run down. I think they're under, if you read the TripAdvisor reviews, they're all terrible. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't think they need to because they don't have competition in the area. Um, and I think that they probably had more demand uh, six or seven years ago or whenever they would have had uh, better oil prices and stuff um, than they do now. Uh, but the regulation part is attractive and they have a ton of free cash flow. If you want to look at sort of a regulated business that might be attractive that way despite the f just because it has almost no competition this would be something i don't mind any of the capital allocation that they've been doing or anything like that a lot of people would be really attracted by the dividend this is something that'll probably pay a, you know if you buy today a high single digit dividend to yeah. potentially if it was a little bit cheaper might even pay a double digit dividend at times i know the thing that a lot of people like from a speculative perspective here is that what if 
um, the region gets hot again in terms of uh, uh, oil production and stuff, and uh, that they used to have much more demand in a couple of their casinos, and that could happen again. Uh, and they wouldn't have to put anything into them. People would still go to the casinos no matter how run down they are and stuff. And I don't want to overstate that. I think they're pretty typical of regional sort of monopoly casino things. Um, but yeah, people. These are not destination casinos. People are yeah. gambling there because they're in the hotels and stuff around mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And your initial interest level was sixty percent. And I think I don't know if I. Let's see if I have my. Let's see if you gave me a price because what we'll do is Jeff will tell me when he researches the company if there's a uh, price where he would want to revisit it. Let's see. So you would be interested at four point three three, so forty four percent lower, I believe. Okay. So. That's when we will revisit. I have it on a spreadsheet, and then when it kind of gets closer to that, I, I follow along, and I'll let Jeff know, hey, it's uh, it's sold off or whatever. Okay, next uh, company, Vitreous Glass, a low-growth, high-dividend-yield stock with incredible returns on equity and incredibly frightening supplier and customer concentration risks. As you would guess, I loved this one. Uh, can't not as I would could, guess that I'm not sure I could figure it out though. Uh, the company, unfortunately, because it's a Canadian company, um, all these Canadian companies <laughs> coming up on our screens. Be, I should say not because it's a Canadian company, but because it doesn't have a, a like a 10K in the U.S. It isn't filing stuff in the U.S. that would require some. Um, not required, but would more likely include some information that this company isn't giving out. Um, we have less information here than we do with a company like NACO. Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't say that's because they're Canadian. That's their own choice and stuff. They could certainly disclose it. Um, and NACO may not have disclosed as much as they choose to. But uh, if I had as much information about Vitreous Glass as I do about NACO, it's entirely possible I could buy the stock. Or not, if I found out bad things. Uh, but I don't know what their contracts are. So, like, NACO, for instance, breaks down exactly who their customers are, how long the contracts are till, some terms of the contracts and stuff. So I know that the contracts won't expire till certain dates. I look up the customers, see what their credit rating are i can look up um uh satellite images of exactly where they are stuff yeah. like that that's helpful here here uh i did read other write-ups that say that they know who the customers are and i suspect i know who the customers are and where the plants are but uh this company takes uh recycled glass so glass bottles from the um from the government of Al- well from a program basically a government program in alberta to recycle glass and then it has to take all of the glass right and then um so it accepts all of it and then when needed it produces the it recycles that glass so it breaks that glass down into something that can be used in fiberglass insulation uh by uh two customers in the region uh although not super super close um to uh be used probably for putting into housing uh, is most likely. Uh, like I said, they don't give a ton of information on that. And some of the things I'm guessing, like I'm guessing that their production is just in time because of some things I saw with the inventory. Um, if you look at their inventory, they hold almost, they hold a ton of, um, uh, of the glass all the time, but they hold very, very little finished inventory, which suggests to me that they only produce it when their customer needs it. Um, and that they have a guarantee that they have to, uh, like, you know, how companies have minimum purchase obligations. Yeah. Well, there, I think they're obligations that they have to take all the glass that's provided to them. So they're basically a place to dump all of the glass that's been collected. And then as needed, they produce it for these other two sites for fiberglass stuff. They have more than two customers, but only two that I think that matter and have profits from, mm-hmm. um, they pay a massive dividend. Yes. And, this company has a great, if people want to look at it, like a great incentive compensation deal here. Um, management is basically paid a flat, uh, uh, 
paid a fee like a um, the same way that you know a hedge fund or something manager would be paid a fee on cash flow from operations. So for every dollar more of cash flow from operations they generate, they would get like you know twenty cents more in um, in compensation or something. And that's basically where all their compensation comes from. So they're very aligned that way. They pay everything out in dividends. They do super minimal capex. There's only one plant. Um, it's very attractive in all those ways. But of course, there's the issues of the contracts. I go into great detail here uh, speculating on why, because what everyone asks is, okay, with a company like this is, okay, well, shouldn't they cut out the middleman? Um, because this company's earning whatever, 30% plus returns on equity a lot of times. Doesn't it make sense for the two customers to simply um, go directly to uh, do this recycling stuff themselves? And I go through, I don't know, five or six different points about why that might not make sense. Everything for, so a big part of this is that, um, the value of the product is extremely low compared to the weight. So transporting it very far when it makes sense. So that's an issue that you, you like have. companies like that, right? Or no? Yeah, I do a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's why. So even if they, I mean, you could try to cut them out by producing at your own plant yourself. Um, I'm not sure that companies want to agree to take all the glass. Yeah. I'm not sure they want to store it at the site. I'm not sure all those things. They definitely can't cooperate with each other. Um, and then there's economies of scales and stuff that I get into that don't look that, that would be a problem if you're only buying half of it. And then also, uh, I feel, which I can't prove, that the company hasn't gotten lower and lower costs over time because of things it's doing at the plant. Basically, it's naturally deflationary. It's, it's getting more efficient. Um, I can't prove that, but I don't have any evidence that the price of the actual product is going up, and yet their their margins and things on like a unit basis do seem to be going up. So I think that their plan economics are getting a little better. All the and time. your your initial interest is eighty percent. So this yeah. is a company that you probably are going to want to revisit in the future. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, last uh, stock we are going to go over: Amark Precious Metals ticker AMRK, a dealer and lender in physical gold. What are we doing here, Jeffrey? Uh, I think we already did this one. Did we already talk about it? Yeah. We'll we talk about it one more time. Let's talk about it one more time. <laughs> uh, AMI Precious Metals doesn't interest me that much. It has a secured lending business that I like, um, which means that uh, that gold that they're basically uh, holding themselves is used as collateral, uh, that they're holding on behalf of clients themselves is used as collateral, which I think is a great way to make loans and it's very, very safe. They've never had a loss on it. It makes a ton of sense to me. The other parts of the business I don't like as much and my initial interest was pretty low. Yeah, it looks like it's uh, 20%. So, but if you want to see a business I like, you can just read about their secured lending business, which I do like a lot. The other yeah. parts of the business I didn't like. No. Got it. So for a company like Vitreous Glass, then, mm -hmm. so at this point, okay, so that rate gave, I think that was the highest rating that you had, mm -hmm. 80%. What do you need to find out next to That's get more comfortable with it, you know, to potentially take the next step forward? That's the hard part. I could know whether to invest or not if I went there. Yeah. So but it would, it would be doing away like, from us. Yeah. Uh, Is yeah. it probably cold there right I, now? Is it cold there? <laughs> Yes, we live, in, we live in Texas. We don't. We don't yes, like it's the cold. It's cold in Alberta in the winter. Yes. <laughs> um, no. So if I visited uh, Vitreous Glass Plant and the two plants of the uh, customers, then yeah, yeah, I think that's all that I would need. So out of these, all of these stocks that we just went over, which one's your favorite? Oh, by far, Vitreous Glass. Okay, which one's I your second close. favorite? Game host. Game host. Got it. And why is Vitreous Glass your favorite? 
Uh, Vitreous glass is my favorite because the, the biggest advantage of Vitreous glass is that any risks that it has have nothing to do with any other risks in your portfolio. So if you add Vitreous glass in there, you may feel stupid if they lose a customer or something, but in no way is Vitreous glass exposed to anything else that is happening in your portfolio. So if it succeeds, it will succeed despite the fact that everything else in your portfolio is doing badly. And if it fails, it will fail in a way that has nothing to do with a credit crisis, that has nothing to do with a recession in the US, that has nothing to do with whatever. It, the behavior of the stock will be very different than the behavior of anything else. So it's a way to make a bet, and I think at the current price and stuff, a pretty good bet, um, on something that is just totally uncorrelated with the rest of your portfolio. So, I mean, from a portfolio perspective, I think it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I have to talk a little bit about that. It's a great diversifier. Mm -hmm. So if you like the if you like the bet, if you feel that you have an edge in this, you know, to use like the Kelly formula terminology, um, it's completely uncorrelated with other stuff in terms of the the risk here. It will succeed except for the risk that like there's something wrong with the supplier or customer thing, and they don't give enough detail to me on contracts and stuff. Now maybe the management's willing to talk to people and stuff about that. I don't know, but um, I also suspect that just visiting the area, uh, if you could actually visit the t the sites or have some stuff like that that you could figure it out yeah yeah i knew when i was first looking at this company that you'd be very interested in it yeah funny so. how that works out <laughs> yeah cool well like i said in the beginning of the podcast and in the middle if you want to get access to all of these write-ups go to focuscompounding.com sign up for that premium membership we are pumping out a ton of content i think our goal is to really have like what three to four posts up there a week of new ideas. Yeah. Now, 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 this doesn't mean that they're all buy ideas, but a lot of people actually value the ideas more where you say, I don't have any interest in it. And, right. And for why you don't have an interest in yeah. it. Yeah. You know? And there were a couple of writers of people other than me. Uh, Burford Capital's written up. We did a podcast on that one yep. with the author of that uh, post. And then also a really interesting one was a write up of NT Butterfield, which yeah. is a bank in Bermuda, which has uh, very low cost deposits, but then basically just buys AAA type securities. Yeah. That was a really interesting write up, not by me though. Jeff and I spent a lot of time talking about about that Butterfield. company. Yeah. That's true. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. Leave us a rating review. Hit that subscribe button. Thumbs this video up. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.